And for the rest of us, if we could open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 43, the second half of that verse. And if you're using the Bible in the seat in front of you, you'll find that on around page 733. Luke chapter 9, 40, verse 43. Knowing who you really are makes all the difference. There's a scene in the movie Toy Story where Buzz Lightyear, a space ranger action figure, is going through an identity crisis. Um, he, he thought that he was a real space ranger, but he's discovered that he's actually just a toy action figure. Yet he's still a cool, useful toy, and his friend Woody, a cowboy doll, really needs his help. Because you see, they're both trapped in the house of Sid, an evil boy who likes to torture and destroy toys. And uh, their owner is a boy named Andy who lives next door, but who's moving that day. The family's moving. Um, and uh, they're Andy's favorite two toys. And, and he's heartbroken that he can't find them and that he's going to move away and lose them forever. And, and so time is of the essence as Woody and Buzz are going to try to escape from Sid and get back to Andy's, Andy's house so that they can get on the moving van. So let's watch. Get over here and see if you can get this toolbox off me. Oh, come on, Buzz. I, Buzz, I can't do this without you. I need your help. I can't help. I can't help anyone. But sure you can, Buzz. You can get me out of here. And then I'll get that rocket off you and we'll make a break for Andy's house. Andy's house? Sid's house? What's the difference? Oh, Buzz, you've had a big fall. You, you must not be thinking clearly. No, Woody. For the first time, I am thinking clearly. You were right all along. I'm not a space ranger. I'm just a toy, a stupid little insignificant toy. Whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a, a space ranger. Yeah, right. No, it is. Look, over in that house is a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. But why would Andy want me? Why would Andy want you? Look at you. You're a Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings. You glow in the dark. You talk. Your helmet does that, that, that whoosh thing. You are a cool toy. As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean, I mean, what chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? All I can do is... There's a snake in my boots! Why would Andy ever want to play with me when he's got you? I'm the one that should be strapped to that rocket. Don't you love that last part where Buzz looks at his foot and it says that he belongs to Andy, his owner, the one who loves him. 
That's his identity, and, and when he realizes that, everything changes for him. Because knowing who you are and who you belong to makes all the difference. That's what today's passage in Luke is about. Let's take a look. The, the last couple sections um, of Luke in chapter 9 were about who Jesus is, his mission, his identity. First, Peter figured out that Jesus is the Messiah. Then Jesus tells how he's going to be a suffering and a dying Messiah. And then Jesus is transfigured on the mountain and, and God proclaims with a voice from heaven that Jesus is his own son who's sent into the world as God's servant to the world. And now, after that, as Jesus and his disciples come back down the mountain, the focus changes from the identity and the mission of Jesus to the identity and mission of the disciples. From who Jesus is to who his followers are, who his people are in light of who Jesus is. Because once you know who Jesus is and you know what his mission is, then, in the case of the disciples, they can begin to realize who they are and who they're, or what their mission is. That's why in Luke 9, after Jesus shows his disciples his incredible power, his authority to teach about God's kingdom, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, Jesus then sends his disciples out to proclaim the kingdom, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. And after Jesus tells them he's going to suffer and be rejected and killed, he tells his disciples that they too must take up their crosses and follow, losing their life to find it. Like master like disciples. So in Luke 9, we learn that Jesus is a Messiah who saves both through power and through suffering. And to follow Jesus, to be a part of his kingdom, requires that we embrace a ministry of both using his power and sharing in his suffering as well. To understand this better, let's, let's ponder the, the enigmatic title that Jesus calls himself by in verse 44 and, and throughout the Gospels for that matter, Son of Man. Very often he calls himself Son of Man. What does it mean to be the Son of Man? Well, when you, when you don't understand something in the New Testament, the first place to go for an answer is the Old Testament. And what we find in the Old Testament is that this phrase, son of man, is used in, in three different ways. First, it's used as a simple synonym for being a human being. A son of man is a, is a human being. Like the well-known verse in Psalm 9, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Then second, you find that, that son of man is used more than 90 times in the book of Ezekiel. It's used to describe Ezekiel the prophet to, to highlight his humanity compared to God and, and the powerful angelic beings that Ezekiel encounters in his visions, Ezekiel is just a weak, frail son of man. And then third, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, contains an apocalyptic vision which introduces a figure which is described as one like a son of man. In this vision, four terrible beasts arise on the earth to persecute God's people. And then this exalted figure described as one like a son of man is led into God's presence and the beasts are destroyed and this son of man is given power and authority and dominion forever and ever. 
From this vision that, that Daniel has and the interpretation that, that Daniel then receives from an angel about the vision, it seems that this son of man figure represents God's people who are going to suffer in exile and captivity under these beastly oppressive empires, but then they're going to be vindicated and they're going to be given a kingdom which will last forever. And yet, even though that's the clear interpretation of the vision, it's also true that kingdoms have kings. Each of the beastly kingdoms in Daniel's vision has a king who rules over it. And so why not the humane kingdom, God's people, represented by the Son of Man? The Son of Man clearly represents God's people, but why wouldn't the Son of Man also be a king who comes before the heavenly court and is given the kingdom on behalf of God's people? Daniel doesn't tell us exactly if that could be true. He leaves us to wonder. Okay, so stepping back then, what does the Old Testament teach us about what Jesus might mean when he calls himself the Son of Man in verse 44? Well, it seems that the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself, probably precisely because it allowed the full paradox of who Jesus is. On the one hand, Jesus identifies with God's people in all of their weakness, their humanity, their suffering. Jesus is a weak human being. He's a Son of Man. Jesus would be persecuted. He would be oppressed by a beastly kingdom like in the prophecy of Daniel. And yet, on the other hand, Jesus would also be vindicated by God. Jesus would be given God's kingdom over which he would reign in power forever and ever. Jesus is all of this. He's both weak and he's powerful. He's both suffering and he's reigning, right? Well, if that is who our king is and how his kingdom comes then that helps us to know who we are too and what we can expect. Jesus is powerful and so we can expect to share in that power. And Jesus is weak and afflicted for us because he identifies with us, not so that he can suffer so that we don't have to, but so that our suffering can end in glory too, just like his suffering does. Paul sums this up in 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we suffer, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. That's what Jesus has been trying to tell his disciples in Luke 9. He, he tried to tell them in verses 21 to 27 after Peter had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. He said that, Jesus said that he was going to suffer and die. And if we would follow him, we must take up our crosses um, and fall in behind him. That we would find his life only by sharing in his death. And then on the mountain, after Jesus had said these things to his disciples, he was transfigured and God's own voice from heaven insisted that we listen to Jesus. And then because Jesus knew that his first disciples weren't listening and they didn't get it the first time, in our passage today, he repeats it again. He, the Son of Man, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And so whoever wants to be great in his kingdom, he says, 
must be the least of all. But they still don't get it, do they? Luke tells us they did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. And then get this, they were afraid to ask him about it. Have you ever overheard someone talking about something that you didn't quite understand, but it didn't sound good, and so you were afraid to ask because you were pretty sure you didn't want to know the answer? (laughs) Um, I remember on 9-11, I was um, in seminary at the time on the West Coast, and so it was three hours earlier there. And, and I walked in um, to the building for my first class, and I overheard a group of students um, saying something about towers hit and burning. And that was all that I caught. And, and I didn't know what they were talking about, but I was afraid to ask. Because in that moment, I wasn't sure that I wanted to know if it was going to turn out to be something as terrible as the worst thing I could imagine. Um, And I think that's what's going on here with the disciples. They don't like what Jesus is saying. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't sound good to them. And so they don't want to go there. Uh, They don't want to ask him about it because they figure ignorance is bliss. The voice from heaven back on the Mount of Transfiguration had been insistent. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. But the disciples think, "Uh uh-uh. I don't want to listen. I don't want to know. Well, enough about the first disciples. How about us? Many of us claim to be disciples of Jesus too. Uh, We've left behind our old lives to follow Jesus. We've uh, put our trust in him and we're we're learning from him how to live. Um, We've accepted his invitation to be a part of God's family and to be citizens of his kingdom. And So as we get to know more and more of who Jesus is and and what his mission is, we are at the same time getting to know more clearly who we are and what our mission is. And so what does this passage teach us about ourselves, about our identity, about our mission? Well, three things. First, that we have been invited to exercise Jesus' power. Uh, This first point is kind of a a backward glance at verses 32. 7 to 43, which Greg looked at with us last week, because many interpreters believe that that passage and this passage from this morning go together, because look at how verse 43 ties them together. Jesus cast out a demon out out of the boy as they were coming down the mountain. We saw that last week. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. So the one story flows right into the other. Jesus demonstrated great power in casting out a demon. And as Greg pointed out last Sunday, in a sense, that miracle, through some of the verbal cues of the way it's told by Luke, uh, is meant to remind us and to sum up for us all of the other great miracles that Jesus has already done thus far in the story. And the people saw that. They saw all the other miracles too, and they marveled. And it's in that context that that Jesus tells his disciples he's going to suffer and die. But before we think about the suffering and dying part, let's remember Jesus' power, which is the lead-in to today's story. And let's remember that Jesus, at the beginning of chapter 9, had sent out his 12 apostles to exercise that power. 
Jesus was powerful. Jesus had come to set the captives free, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, to proclaim good news to the poor. And so this was his disciples' mission too. They were to be healers and liberators too. Channels through which uh, God's healing and restoring power that Jesus was bringing, God's kingdom, through those channels it would flow. Not only Jesus, but now also his apostles. And so, as we saw when we looked at Jesus sending out the twelve, this ministry of power wasn't just for the spiritual elite, for the twelve apostles, because those twelve, and because they were twelve, they represent all of God's people. And so when we get to chapter 10, we'll see that Jesus will then send out 72 others to do the same things. It's not just the apostles. And then in the book of Acts, the the whole church will be sent on this mission and we'll see others exercising Jesus' power as well. So to be a follower of Jesus, the powerful one is to exercise his power. Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.20? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The New Testament assumption is that when you proclaim the good news of a king who comes to set the captives free and to put all that's broken back together again, it's natural that the king's power actually does free the captives and does bind up the broken and does put broken people back together again. That's just normal Christianity in the New Testament. And it's also normal Christianity in many places in the world today. Um, does that mean that every sick person gets healed and, and everyone who wants a miracle gets one? Well, well no. Uh, but it does mean that acts of power are a part of what it means to be on Jesus' mission. Why? Well, first, because Jesus has power. And second, because Jesus is compassionate. Jesus cares for the poor, for the hurting, for the captives, and and for the oppressed. And Jesus is willing to use his power to to heal them and to set them free. And we, as his followers, have been sent out to carry on his mission where he left off. Power. Second, we learn in this passage that we're not only going to exercise power, but we're also the least of all. Just as Jesus will be delivered into the hands of of men to suffer and to die, so whichever of us would be greatest in this kingdom must be the least. Let's remember the context for this. Jesus had just recently sent the apostles out to, to represent him. He'd given them power to cast out demons, to heal. He told them to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom. And he told them that if any town would not welcome them, that they should shake the dust off their feet as a witness against them. The apostles were representing Jesus with, with power, with, with good news from heaven. And, and so to welcome them as Jesus' representatives was to welcome God's Messiah. And to reject them was to reject God. And that must have made them feel pretty important. And then on top of it, for Peter, James, and John, they had been invited by Jesus along to a special prayer retreat on the mountain. And and there, Jesus had been transfigured in heavenly glory, and a couple of God's top VIPs, Moses and Elijah, had showed up as well. And God's own voice had spoken to them all. Wow, you can bet that Peter, James, and John, who had received this exclusive invitation to experience this, were feeling pretty high about themselves. (laughs) 
So it isn't a big surprise that now, after that, an argument breaks out among the disciples about who's the greatest. So what does Jesus do? Well, he gives them an object lesson. He, he takes a little child and he, and he places this child beside him, which, by the way, is the place of honor. And, and Jesus says, do you see this child beside me? Anyone who welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes God, the one who sent me. This is a huge slam on the apostles. <laughs> I don't know if you realize that because for us, children are a symbol of innocence and simple faith. But that's a modern perspective and, and that's not what the disciples would have been thinking. Because in their culture, children were utterly insignificant. In that culture, children were dearly loved by their parents and their uncles and aunts. But, but still, children were viewed, everyone, as a rugrat. They um, were the lowest rung of the social ladder. They had no rights. They had no status. They had no significance. They were genuinely the least of all. And Jesus says, in effect, you think you're so great because you're my apostles. Because I sent you out in my name to represent me, to, to, to exercise my power, to proclaim my message. I could have just as well sent a little child to represent me. If this little child went and they welcomed him, they'd be welcoming me just the same. And the one who sent me as well. Don't think you're irreplaceable. I can be represented just as well by a poor insignificant child. Because in my kingdom, it's not about being the greatest. It's about being the least. And so if you really want to be great in my kingdom, become like this little child. Become like the least. Because my kingdom isn't about being pampered. It's not about getting the divine royal treatment. No, my kingdom is about suffering and dying in love on behalf of others. It's not about getting status and power so you can impose God's will on others. No, it's about giving up these things like little children. And so Jesus' followers are not the greatest, but the least. Jesus has called us out of the world to himself so that we can join him in serving the world and suffering for the world. That's our mission, for we follow and represent a crucified Messiah. Um, if, if you're a Christian, would you turn to someone next to you and say, um, I represent a crucified king. Okay, so second. First is about power. Second is about suffering. Is anyone else cold? Could we turn up the heat a little bit? Someone? The, I think the top thermostats, I don't know why it's gotten cold in here. <laughs> I'm generating a little heat preaching here, but you're just sitting here listening, and you must be colder than I feel. So, um, so third, we learn in this passage not only about suffering and, and power, but we learn that we're to be welcoming, embracing all who identify with Jesus. John, one of the three disciples who had been on the mountain with Jesus, now tells Jesus, by the way, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. This man was not part of Jesus' inner circle. He wasn't sent out with the 12 to cast out demons. 
Um, and, and yet here was this man um, doing what Jesus had commissioned the apostles to do and doing it in Jesus' name. We don't know who this person is and, and what right do they have to be using Jesus' name. The apostles are Jesus' inner circle and they've got no memo from the boss about this interloper. And, and so they take charge. They tell this person to stop. They think that they're doing Jesus a favor. But Jesus says, no, don't stop him. Why stop him? Whoever is not against you is for you. In other words, as many enemies as you're going to have, you need to make all the friends you can get. <laughs> so what's going on here? What motivated John and the others to try to get this other person to stop casting out demons in Jesus' name? And, and why does Jesus call them on it? Well, when we want to be great, we don't want any competition, right? We, we want to feel that we're special, that we're a VIP, and we don't, um, that others don't have any right to be barging in on our party. After all, if just anyone can have what we have, then, then what we've got isn't worth as much anymore. So that's why, of course, country clubs are members only, and the public can't just walk in and enjoy what the members enjoy. That's why invitation only events are invitation only. Not just anyone can show up and enjoy what the invited guests are going to enjoy. Keeping something exclusive makes it special. It makes you feel like you're better or you're more privileged or you're more fortunate than everybody else. Contrast that attitude with what you feel when you see an amazing sunset or or a double rainbow, or, or maybe you're on a boat trip and a pot of whales surfaces and starts spouting right off the side of the boat. And what do you feel? You, you feel like you want to tell as many people as possible. You know, look at that. Wow. Or, you know, you, you text all your friends and send them a picture. <laughs> you, you want to share it because you're awed, you're amazed. And that's the spirit Jesus wants among his disciples. An open, generous, welcoming spirit. Not a stingy, exclusive, gatekeeper spirit which tries to take control and to cut others out so that you can remain the privileged few. And so as God's people, we're supposed to be welcoming and we're supposed to be generous in spirit because Jesus' kingdom isn't for the great or for the special few. It's, it's for the least, it's open to anyone who wants to come, anyone who wants to follow Jesus. After all, the king of this kingdom is a rejected servant, Messiah. Okay, so there's three lessons um, we learn about ourselves once we realize who Jesus is. First, we learn that we're invited to exercise Jesus' power. Second, that we're to consider ourselves the least, those who will suffer as Jesus suffers. And third, that we're to be generous and welcoming toward others. And now here's the thing in our passage. Jesus' disciples fail at all three of these things. Last week, we saw how first they failed to cast the demons out of a boy. They, they failed to exercise Jesus' power. Which makes it ironic after they fail that they go out and they try to stop some other person who is casting out demons in Jesus' name. But second, the disciples also fail at being the least. They, uh, God told them to listen to Jesus, right, about that topic. 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in verse 44, Jesus tells them, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. But they don't listen. They don't understand. They don't even want to ask Jesus about it. Instead, they argue about who's the greatest. And then third, they also fail at being welcoming toward others. The disciples fail at all three of these things. They fail at being like their master. And so do we, don't we? <laughs> yeah. Have you ever failed at exercising Jesus' power? Fail, failed at giving people some sort of tangible evidence that the good news about Jesus is true and that God's kingdom is actually coming, that Jesus is, is actually extending his compassion in powerful ways to help hurting people, to help needy people, to heal, help captive people. Have you ever failed at, at being the least, at considering yourself like a child, at willingly joining Jesus in suffering for the sake of others? Have you ever failed at that? Have you ever failed at welcoming and, and being open-hearted toward others and, and instead you were uh, thinking that you and your group were better and, and you didn't want others getting in on what you had? I know I failed at all three of those things. <laughs> and so did Jesus' first disciples. And so what do we learn? Well, we learn that becoming like Jesus and, and living in Jesus' kingdom doesn't come naturally. That, that you can't just saunter up to Jesus with your own abilities, your own resume, your own strengths, and your common sense, and, and just succeed at being like him and sharing in his mission. It doesn't work that way. No, the life that Jesus is calling us to isn't a natural, normal life. Rather, it's a life we have to learn. We, we have to be discipled in it. Jesus has to teach us to be like this. He has to give us new hearts as well. And, and, and even then, it's, it's likely going to take more than one go at it before we get it. Uh, it's going to take lots of trial and failure along the way. And, and so for Jesus' first disciples who didn't get any of this the first time, they need more discipling. They need more training. And it just so happens that's, about, that's what they're about to get in the next part of Luke's gospel. Starting in verse 51, we're going to see next Sunday, Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem. And this is going to begin what's often called the way section or the journey section, the travel section of Luke's gospel. Because although Jesus sets out right here in chapter 9 for Jerusalem, he's not going to get there until chapter 19. And all along the way, Jesus is going to be traveling with his disciples. And as they journey together, he's going to teach them and to disciple them as to how to be his people, how to live in his kingdom, how to share in his mission. He's going to teach them who they are and how to exercise kingdom power and how to lay down your life in loving sacrifice for others as one of the least and how to have a welcoming heart toward others beyond your in crowd. Maybe you've got all this stuff down already, um, but I know I still have a lot to learn. And so I'm going to beg Jesus to take me along on this journey um, and do my very best to pay attention and, and to stick with the lessons that he's trying to teach me to see what I can learn. And I hope you'll come along too.